Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Pastor Durrell, thank you for the opportunity to be here today and for how gracious you've been. We have been encouraged and it's great to be here with all of you. Let's all stay in Luke chapter 7 to honor God's word as we read it. We'll begin reading in verse number 11. I do believe this, no matter who is speaking, God wants to talk to us. And he has something to say to us every time we open his wonderful book. So in Luke 7, verse 11, and it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out. Now we find a few very heavy details about this situation. It's bad enough that it's someone has died. That's always sad. But this dead man happened to be the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, weep not. Oh, okay, hang on a second. We'll come back to that point. But that's stunning that Jesus would say that. Okay, a widow, a widow is burying her only son. And that has huge emotional ramifications, significant emotional ramifications. But in that day, it had significant social ramifications, survival ramifications. And Jesus shows up on that scene of desperation and brokenness. And his first words are this, weep not. I'm not being irreverent. I just want you to consider this. Either he's crazy or he knows something they don't. And he came and touched the beer. It was like it was a cot for carrying the deceased. And they that bear him stood still. And Jesus doesn't do things in a glamorous way. He just gets things done that matter eternally. He doesn't make a big show. He just changes people's lives. (laughs) And he said, young man, I say unto thee, arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And he delivered him to his mother And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. This isn't the main point, but I do want to reference it. It's a rumor, and here's why. Because they missed the point. Here's the title. He's so much more than a great prophet. So much more than a great prophet. Father, we've already prayed. I just want to ask you one more time for your help. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for the people that are here. God, I do not know them, but you know them very well and you love them. And whether they are new to this church family or have long been established in this place with this people, God, you have a desire to work to help them and to use them to help your work in the lives of others. Thank you for how good you are, God. Thank you for the grace and the mercy that we sang about. God, we bless you and thank you for being good. 
and pray that for a few moments you would talk to us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing. There are just three simple things as we make our way to the point that I'd like you to consider about Jesus in this text. The first thing is this, that Jesus came. The city of Nain, it's referred to as a city, but when you begin to study it out, it's about six miles away from Jesus' hometown. And it wasn't a huge metropolis area. It was, a, it was smaller as cities go. Maybe even some would refer to it as a town or something of that nature. And people would look at a place like that and they would say, well, you know, there's not a whole lot that's there. It's not really a place where there's a lot of places to eat, not a lot of places to stay, not a lot of things to do there. It's not going to be this enormous amount of people that are there. And so it doesn't really seem like the place that a place that Jesus would want to go. And just thinking in terms of his disciples and thinking strategically, Jesus has a limited amount of time upon the earth. He, he is shortly going to be going to the cross in about two years, a year and a half. And so he's trying to maximize every moment. And from a strategic planning perspective, you would look at this decision and you would say, Jesus, you need to go to the major, uh, the, the, the major places where people inhabit them, the, the large hubs of population. And so you can maximize your time and reach the most people. But this is what you got to get about Jesus. And you know this, Please understand this and remember this about God. He always does things deliberately. Sometimes in our life, we look around at the circumstances and we look at the things over which we have no control and we struggle to see how God could and what God could do and what purpose this has. And you may not, and many times you will not know the answer to those questions, but here's what you can be certain of is that God is never doing anything by accident. Nothing ever can catches God off guard. God is never surprised by an unexpected turn in your life that when Jesus does something, he does it on purpose. Now, look, I like, I'm, I'm very, uh, I can be, I try to not be as a pastor, as a husband, as a dad, I should try to be responsible, but like 11 o'clock at night, I'll just be like, Hey, let's go to Taco Bell. <laughs> Like, why? Because bad decisions sound good right now. I don't know. I just want a bunch of fire sauce and some Baja Blast. That would just be fun. And so it's just these random things that explode in my brain like fireworks. And I'm like, oh, Pastor Rurel, do you have a Waffle House around here? Two in the morning. I can't sleep. Let's go. <laughs> okay, get it. Get it. Wait, wait. That's not how Jesus operates. No, when he goes somewhere, he's going there on purpose. Here's the second thing. Jesus came because Jesus cares. We come into the scene, we're introduced immediately. There's no time to adjust. There's no time to catch your breath. There's very little time to process. You come into a scene that is devastating. Even if you don't know the players in the play, this is a scene that is devastating and that is heart-wrenching. You, I don't know about you, but I, I can have nothing to do with it, know nothing about it, but there's something heavy about seeing a funeral processional go 
go by. And it used to be a norm in our culture that you would pull over for that processional just to recognize the value of life and the heaviness of loss, whether you know that or not. And I still try to do that today. It might be a little more dangerous on the roads, but man, there's something special about human life. And there's something heavy about the loss of that life, whether you know them or not. And so you come upon this scene and it is a truly devastating scene. Look, any kind of death is hard. Any kind of loss is heavy. But sometimes you know this to be true. There are elements of a loss that can make it uniquely difficult or a little more challenging. This woman is a widow and so we know that she has already lost much. No, to lose your spouse, whether you've been married for one year or you've been married for 60 years, however long, to go through that is a deep cutting loss that you really can't understand unless you've been through it. It is a breaking away of your heart. It is a tearing away of something that you were so deeply a part of, someone that you were so deeply a part of. And so this woman has lost her soulmate, her friend, as Song of Solomon would say, the lover of her heart and soul. She has lost him. We don't know what circumstances that led to that, but she has lost her husband. But now the man that is on this casket that is being carried, this cot that is used to carry the deceased, this man is not her husband, but it's her son and not just her son. Look, losing a child is devastating in ways that you don't know unless you've been through it. But this wasn't just a son. This was her only son. This isn't as important as losing them, but it needs to be understood so that we have a full grasp on the situation. She was living in a time when women did not have the means or opportunity to provide them, provide for themselves the way that women do today. Now, side note, I just want to encourage you with this. I love this about Jesus. When you actually study the Gospels, Jesus did more to elevate the status and opportunity of women than anyone has ever done in history. No, and I, I will stand before anyone and say that. Jesus elevated women. The, in fact, the first person that he told the resurrection about wasn't one of his disciples. It was a lady, hallelujah. Anyway, side note, I get distracted with that. So here's this lady, she's lost her provider in her husband. She's lost her provider in her son. So not only is her heart devastated, this is like Naomi level grief. This is like Job level grief. I've not only lost my husband, I've lost my only son. In addition to that, I don't even know how I'm going to survive. If I can survive the heartbreak, I don't know how I can survive practically. But Jesus came because he cares. Look, there's, there's, there's so many people in the world. <laughs> it's a lot. Oh, okay, so I, we're coming through the airport. We were, our layover was in Salt Lake City, and they have a Lego store there. And obviously, 
So the ladies are getting something at Starbucks and I tell my son to go down to the Lego store so I then have a reason to go down to the Lego store. I'm like, hey, dude, go check that out. He's like, dad, I'm 17, I'm, I'm good. And I'm like, obey your father. And then I come down there and I'm like, man, it's a lot of cool stuff in here, it's really fun. They, they, have these, they have these two enormous Lego statues, busts of a pilot and something else. And, and one of them had over 17,000 bricks. And it took like 70 hours to make. That's a lot of Legos. You know what there's a lot more of in the world than Legos? People. Man, by, the, by the billions. And it can just get overwhelming thinking about the vastness of humanity. And, and we kind of get lost in our own little bubbles and we forget that there are cities and villages, just millions of people that we don't even know about in this country. And then you expand beyond our borders and there's billions of people that we'll never see and that we'll never know. But here's what's amazing. Jesus cares about every one of them. And here's why that should be amazing to you. Because if Jesus cares for every one of them, then that means Jesus cares for you. Sometimes we get the idea that we're just like one little block in this myriad of blocks and nobody really knows us and nobody really cares about us and nobody is really paying attention to us. I'm just like this woman from Nain. No one would ever come my way on purpose. No one would ever be aware of me. No one would ever be interested in the tears that I cry in at night, in the anxiety that I wrestle with, in the hopelessness that I feel, in the desperation that I feel to be free from this addiction and the desperation that I feel to have help, but I'm too ashamed to ask for help. No one would care about that, but I'm telling you that Jesus knows you and he comes because he cares. And you can say, I don't, I, you don't know what I have going on and I don't need to know. I don't, I said this to the young people yesterday. I don't need to know what is going on to know that Jesus cares. But compassion itself is not enough. Here's what I mean by that. I, I try to be a helpful human. I'm trying to get my patch. Helpful human. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? You see people going through stuff and you want to help them, right? Okay, you should. <laughs> okay, you see someone broken down on the road. And I understand you got to use discernment and you got to be careful, especially in the day and age in which we are living. But, but you see someone and, and obviously they are distressed and the hood is up and smoke is coming out of the engine. Me whip over real quick. And you're like, I want so badly to be useful. But here's all I can do. I roll up and I'm like, I'll give you a hug. Like, you know, no, I've been asked this, you know anything about cars? I mean, that's one. <laughs> so tires go around and kick it. I'm like, man, I don't think the tires are the problem. Steering wheel seems good. <laughs> Your seatbelts work? Are you out of blinker fluid? I don't know. I'm just, I'm not a mechanic. No, no, I care. I care. Have you ever cared but didn't know how to help? 
You wanted so desperately to have an answer. You wanted so deeply to be able to offer advice. You wanted so deeply and intensely wanted to be able to offer a solution that would make a significant difference. And this is what sets Jesus apart from everyone else. Jesus came because Jesus cares, but this is where he is in a category all his own. Jesus can. It doesn't matter the situation, he can. Oh, so I'm a sports junkie. Besides Taco Bell, I really love sports. And man, there's a lot of great athletes in a lot of different sports. Um, some of you young people, I mean, you won't even know who this is. You should look him up sometime. But man, some of the glory days of the NBA were in the 80s and 90s. And you're like, that's really old. No, you just don't know. It's like, man, fouls were actually fouls. I mean, we were raised, you just hit somebody hard if you don't want them to score, and then you get up and you move on. Today, you touch somebody the wrong way, and it's a flagrant. And people that make fun of soccer just need to watch modern NBA. It's as bad. Anyway, man, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. Yeah, I love it. I say, I say some of these names, you're like, amen, amen. I love it, dude. Start signing Bibles as Larry Bird, yeah. <laughs> Michael Jordan's the greatest. Anyway, don't talk to me about LeBron or anybody else. <laughs> I love it. It's so much fun. So Larry Bird was notorious for this. He would, there would be very little time on the clock. And he would tell the player guarding him, this is the play that we're going to run. This is documented by opposing teams, by coaches, by him. He would tell the player guarding him, this is the play we're running. This is the spot on the floor I'm going to go to. I'm going to shoot the ball in your eye. And we're going to win the game. And that happened more than once. Look, I'm not sure you find that quality in the Sermon on the Mount or the fruit of the Spirit anywhere. And then you say, well, that's kind of arrogant. But you know what else it is? It demonstrates a confidence, a certainty and your ability. Does that make sense? Okay, Larry Bird here, Jesus here. Please get this point. I'm not trying to diminish Jesus in any way. I want you to get this point though. Jesus shows up on any scene and he knows what he can do. Yeah, no, and, and the opposition isn't another human. The opposition can be circumstances. It can be the work of the devil. It can be devastation. It can be loss. It can be regret. It can be heartache. It can be bad decisions. But Jesus shows up on the scene. And I love this. I tried to point it out to you, but please get this. He shows up on this scene and he says, weep not. He said, look, the, the response that you're having right now is contrary to a reality that you are not yet aware of. Oh, that's, that thought is so good. The, the emotions that you're having are so contrary to what you don't yet know is possible. And so he shows up and he says, listen, you just need to stop weeping. You need to stop crying because I have the ability to do something that you aren't fully aware of. So he shows up on this scene and he sees this broken and devastated woman. He stops the procession and without any explanation, without any kind of 
of a grand entrance. He just speaks his life into the life of this young man. By the way, this is a beautiful picture of salvation. Salvation is not a process that you accomplish. Salvation is not a religious motion of organized steps that you have to complete. Salvation is you simply by faith receiving the life of God by believing in Jesus Christ. Salvation is not what we do. It's what he's done. And by the way, you want some doctrinal substance. We believe in eternal security. And you say, well, that phrase isn't found in the Bible. But the idea is, he said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. You stay saved the same way you got saved, which is by Jesus giving you his life. You understand you stay saved because Jesus keeps you saved you say well I gotta do 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 no he's already done he's done it you say well what if I mess up no you probably will I've had to ask God's forgiveness for things this week no but his sufficiency in the cross and his resurrection it takes care of our sin so that we are free so Jesus shows up on this scene and he breathes his life into this situation I'm thankful this didn't happen in this case, but it does happen today. We carry our cots of devastation in processes of devastation, assuming nothing can be done to change where we are. Some of you this morning, I don't know, I have the gift of ignorance this morning You might have been attending this church for a while, but if you died today, you don't know for sure that you would go to heaven. Salvation isn't in a building. As amazing as this church family is, it's not in a baptism. It's not in signing a card. It's in understanding I'm a sinner and Jesus, Jesus is the only savior. There are no rules to follow that get you saved. There are no leaves to turn over that get you saved. There's not a dress code for salvation. There's not a number of Bible verses to memorize. Salvation is through faith in Jesus alone, but you carry around your cot of death, your procession of devastation, assuming that there is no savior for me. There is no salvation for what I've done. No, Jesus is sufficient to forgive us of all our sins. You can't be guilty of something that God won't forgive if you'll simply humble yourself and believe in Jesus Christ. It's that simple. And you can have eternal life right now. But we have problems after salvation. We have marriage problems after salvation. We have parenting problems. We get into things that can enslave us. I hate that it's true, but there are addictive substances and sites that are wreaking havoc in America today that are wreaking havoc in American churches today. And not just in America, but this is where we are. And you carry around your shame. 
You come in and you put on a front. You look the leadership in the eye. You look your friends in the eye. And you, you have this attitude. You know what? Things are good. I'm doing great. You know the vernacular. You know the statements to make. Praise the Lord. God is good. This is a great song. These are great services. Man, that message was really good. And you mean it. But in your heart, you're crying out for help. You just think that there is nothing that can be done. I'm telling you, the one who inhabits this place isn't afraid of your shame. The one who inhabits this place won't run from your loss. Some of you are hurting for things that have been done to you. Look, before you can learn how to forgive, you got to bring your loss to Jesus and say, God, I have this procession of devastation and there is healing that I don't know how to have outside of you. Look, I don't have a bunch of steps this morning. I love practical application. I don't have a bunch of steps this morning about how you go through these things. This is the point that you got to get. We assume that our, process, our processional of devastation is so bad that nothing can be done rather than humbling ourselves and saying, God, can you help me? And I'm telling you, no matter where you're at, he can. You say there's weeping going on, there's loss going on, but God can help you. It can start with something as simple as this. God, I need to acknowledge that I've got sin in my life. God, I need to acknowledge that I'm, I'm hurt. I've tried to be tough. I've tried to act like things didn't bother me, but I'm hurt. God, I need to be willing to go and talk to someone you have amazing men and women here that love God. You have an amazing pastor and pastor's wife, amazing, amazing staff leadership and lay leadership. You have amazing brothers and sisters that you're sitting among. Don't isolate yourself from people that God could use to help you. No, no. If they knew what was going on, don't assume that you know how godly people will respond. Because the tone that I pick up on here, this isn't a place of condemnation. It is a place of redemption. It is a place where people want to see God do for you what he's done for them. And the truth is, me included, we've all got skeletons. We've all got scars. We've all had things that Jesus had to help us from, help us out of, help us through. This is a place, if you'll help open yourself up to it, where God can bring some healing and hope into your life. You know, it's a tragedy. You come in and out of these services all the time and you never stop the procession and see what God can do. No, it happens. My friends, brothers and sisters, I, as much as a visiting pastor can care about you, I care about you. I want God's best for you. It is a tragedy to think that you could come in and out these doors, but because you're ashamed or because you're uncertain or because you're angry, you never stop the procession and give God an opportunity. You're just in and out, in and out, but you never let God touch your grief, touch your loss, touch your regret and see what he can do. Last thing, let's be people that don't run from processions of devastation. Oh man, <laughs> I could talk about, I'm landing the plane. Now our church family hears that and they're like, yeah, right, but I'm not the pastor here, so I really am. <laughs> there will be no flybys. <laughs> I would say this, you're surrounded by hurting people.
You are surrounded at your work, in your neighborhoods, sometimes here and you don't even know it. You are surrounded by hurting people, sometimes people that have been hurt by what others have done to them, sometimes by hurt that they have inflicted on themselves. And you know what we can think? I don't know how to help them. But you do. No, we, we live in an age where we have fallen into this expert syndrome. There is a place for experts. There is. But we act as though we can't point anybody to Jesus Christ because we're not knowledgeable in every area. Listen to me. If you know him, you know the answer. No, it doesn't mean there's not a place for advice beyond your capacity. But if you know him, you know where it begins and ends. Is he not the Alpha and Omega? Is he not the first and the last? Is he not the beginning and the end? Is he not the lamb slain from the foundation of the world? Is he not the risen savior who ever lives to make intercession for us? And if you're a child of God, you know him. You don't have to run up to people saying, hi, I have the answers. You can just run up to people and say, I know who does have the answer. You don't have to know how to fix anybody's marriage to say, hey, I know you're going through a hard time. I just want you to know you're not alone. Why don't you come to church with me this Sunday and I'll buy you lunch afterwards? You, you don't have to know all the answers. You just know where you can find the answers. And you don't know how to articulate it in all the ways that maybe pastor does, but you know how to be a friend to somebody who, and you remember where you were a couple of years ago when someone invited you, when someone met you at this altar and prayed for you. You don't have to have all the answers, but we don't need to be people that run away from processions of death. We need to be running to the processions of devastation because we have the one who cares and can help anyone. Let's stop running from processions and let's stop our procession and see what Jesus can do in our lives. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.